Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Coming up, hybrid working and the financial windfall, Blue Doors Passage House, and a call for help from the United Way. But we begin with some encouraging news about COVID. According to Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, COVID-19 levels in wastewater, the positivity rate, and hospitalizations are all on the decline. Quote, if we continue along this trajectory, I think we'll have a calm summer, end quote. Dr. Moore's cautious optimism is certainly worth exploring. We're joined now by York Region's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Barry Pecos. Welcome to the show and a happy May 2-4 long weekend, Dr. Pecos. Thank you for having me. So, do you recall what the COVID situation was last Victoria Day weekend back in 2021? So, things have evolved, obviously. Every month of COVID is different, and certainly every summer of COVID is different. Um, and this, uh, this one is a little bit more um, optimistic, uh, I think. Uh, we're in a, a good place, particularly with respect to most people in, in our in our population in York Region have been vaccinated, and we are seeing wastewater signals decreasing. Uh, but it doesn't mean we're out of the woods, but we're still in a good trajectory for the summer. And why? What is going right in your view? So what is going right right now is that we're coming off uh, two peaks, really, the, the, the big peak the Omicron peak uh, in January, just in the in the depth of winter there, and then the one that happened this spring when all of our masks came off uh, and uh, and we started gathering more with less uh, uh, pandemic control restrictions. And that, those numbers in, in terms of our wastewater, so how much uh, virus we're seeing in the population, of course, because we're not testing as much, we can only see it in the wastewater, is on a downward trend. So that is very positive. On the other uh, side, though, um, it is many, many times higher than in the first, second, third, or fourth wave, meaning there's lots of COVID out there, but people aren't getting nearly as sick because most people are vaccinated. So that's the, that's the really good news. Um, but what it still does mean is there are people in our population, certainly who are immunocompromised or, or um, otherwise at risk, and, and particularly uh, because of age, over, over 80 and over 70 as well, um, who are going to be more exposed to the virus potentially uh, over the summer or certainly in the spring months now than they were in previous summers. And, and that said, without pe- other people wearing masks often. So people who are in that situation are still going to have to be somewhat careful. Um, but I think, you know, with the weather warming and people are able to be outside now, you know, that risk is going to be restricted to a small number of people, but it's still there. So still something to think about. And, you know, we talk about cautious optimism, and you've already touched on some of it. There is a big but when it comes to the prediction of a calm summer. Uh, there are concerns uh, on the part of many that subvariants of Omicron like BA4 and BA5 are floating out there. I understand only 21% of eligible Ontarians have had their fourth shot, their second booster. And we hear as well that come the fall, we could be in trouble again. What do you say to all of that? So, you know, I'm, I am optimistic toward, to the summer, and uh, we are certainly monitoring variants around the world. 
um, and in York Region, and we haven't seen anything that is very concerning to us. So I think that's, that's very good, and, and we know, as opposed to previous summers, we know that our systems for monitoring are actually much better than they ever been in the past, and, and we are seeing some very small amounts of BA4, BA5, other variants that really are not that significant in wastewater um, and in our testing, and what that tells us is our systems for looking for these things are working. Um, but uh, if another variant, a more concerning variant, were to arise around the world, um, you know, I, I think it w- is certainly a concern for Ontarians. Uh, more of a concern moving into the fall when we when we move indoors. Um, that is when we see whether it's COVID or other viral infections, including but certainly not limited to influenza. Um, that is when we're going to be having challenges in the fall. And uh, whether it is COVID or everything else, and by everything else I mean these viruses that we haven't seen for two and a half years, and, and by that time, you know, a full two and a half years will have passed since we all got together in the fall without masks on and in, in, in any number of people we want. Um, and those viruses are going to spread. And we saw that in some other countries that had limited protections last year. And that is going to be a significant challenge this year. And mostly in the acute care sector, meaning in hospitals themselves, they're going to be having to deal with this. And then just thinking in general about what we're going to be doing as individuals. And it may very well be the case um, that we may need masks back on in the fall. And and I think it'd probably be prudent um, for most people uh, who are at risk because of their age or other reasons to definitely put those masks back on in the fall. We'll be talking about that quite a bit you know, in between now and then. Uh, but those are some things to be thinking about, what we can look forward to. And what are your thoughts on this, the, the fourth shot, the second booster? Just 21% of eligible Ontarians, so that's less than a, a quarter of those who are eligible are, are taking advantage of it. Why do you think there is this reluctance, I guess? Well, you know, most of these people, certainly the people who are eligible for the fourth dose are the people who've had the three doses, right? So these aren't vaccine-hesitant people. They're people, I think, generally who question uh, whether to bother, right? And, and oh. I think that's totally legitimate, many of whom, uh, many of those people um, have had COVID, and thanks to them being vaccinated with three doses, it wasn't particularly severe to them, so they're not, you know, awfully concerned about it. And, and that's normal, that's natural. Um, many of them would be in the 60 to 70 age group. In fact, that's the largest group, just by numbers. Um, and, and those people are eligible, um, but they're not the highest risk group that was identified by NASI. So, um, you know, I'm not too concerned at this point uh, about uptake of, of the fourth doses. You know, people in Ontario and York region have just shown that they're awfully reasonable and they listen to advice and they're looking out for themselves and their community. So, you know, when things do start the uptick, which we are expecting in the fall, um, you know, I, I'm pretty confident that we'll be able to deliver those vaccines to people that they need um, and, and that people will go and come into clinics for them. I think it's important to note also that in the fall, um, it's very likely that we're going to have a slightly different kind of vaccine, uh, particularly one from Moderna that's a bivalent vaccine. So it's got protection from a few variants of COVID, and, and it does provide additional protection uh, against Omicron. Uh, and, and Moderna, in general, is an excellent vaccine and provides uh, protection that's uh, somewhat better than the Pfizer vaccine. And so, you know, that's what I think we can look forward to in the fall, to those who are holding off with their fourth dose, they can get it probably in the fall. Um, and, and a lot of people are at the three-month mark, four-month mark, five-month mark, and it's not a magical number when they need to get uh, their next dose. We want to have them protected, I think, before next fall. And so, you know, when people choose to get it either, uh, you know, over the summer or closer to the fall, I think that's very reasonable. And you'll continue to hear from us in public health and from, 
you know, Dr. Moore, um, when things look a little bit more um, acute or urgent and when we're really going to be pushing for people um, to get that fourth dose. For now, uh, I think most people, you know, it, it, it really is their choice, and I certainly encourage it, and, and uh, my parents who are in that age group have received it. But, you know, I, I think uh, people can watch and wait. Uh, and when they do hit that five-month mark or, or even the six-month mark, you know, that's when I think they should go in and, and get their fourth dose, especially if they're in the 60 to 70 category and they're waiting a little bit. I think it's a great idea to get one when you hit the six-month mark. And what about the other end of the age spectrum? Uh, still no vaccination for children under the age of five. Does that concern you? Certainly, you know, that's concerning in the sense that both we don't want kids that age to get sick. We certainly don't want them to get very sick and need hospitalization, and, and it is much more rare among kids. But, you know, with any respiratory virus, um, including COVID, you know, that's the age group that can tend to spread it uh, amongst themselves and then give it to grandparents and others in the community. So that is something we're looking for. There are vaccines that are in development or that are already developed and are being tested and are, are seeking approval um, over the summer. So, you know, it is something we may see available uh, come fall. Um, and, it's, you know, it's very important that that age group be vaccinated to protect the entire community and themselves. And the other, you know, uh, 40% of those uh, 5 to 11s who have still yet to get vaccinated, you know, whether it be for camp or for next year in school, I think that's really important that they get vaccinated as well and to protect, of course, the community and their grandparents and, and others. So, you know, those are things that are on the horizon and things people should be thinking about, you know, to have the best possible fall. When we, I know we're not even in summer yet, but certainly in public health, we're always looking to the future and preparing as best we can. So those are the things we're thinking about uh, over the next six to 12 months. So the center of this discussion today with you, Dr. Pecos, is the idea that we may be in for a calm summer. So what do we, as citizens of Ontario, citizens of York Region, what do we do with this information? And how do we protect ourselves and still have fun as we are in the middle of the long weekend, the first sort of unofficial long weekend of the summer, because it's not summer yet. We have many months to go where we'll be out and about and hoping to have fun. But how do we stay safe? So, you know, it is about getting out and about and having fun, and I wouldn't even say having fun, but just the normal healthy things we do, which is exercising and socializing. And those are things we've all been desperate for. And for those who've been hesitating until this point, for very good reasons, many of them, um, now is the time to get out and get that exercise, get that socialization that's so important for your, for your mental and, and spiritual and physical well-being. Um, and, and for those who are at risk, uh, meaning, you know, you're on a medication that makes you immunocompromised or you have a severely immunocompromising condition, you know, you're going to still want to, particularly in an indoor environment or when you're in a confined space or, or close to people, especially people you don't know, you know, what their status might be, you may want to consider, or I think you, you will want to consider having a mask. I think that is going to be important. And for everyone who's not in that group, you know, what we've been encouraging thus far is, is at least if you're not going to wear a mask, to have one with you. So that if you need to protect other people or yourself, that you'll be able to put it on when appropriate. But other than that, I think people can, you know, safely get together. They can safely go, you know, outside exercise and socialize, you know, starting right from this weekend, but going forward. But also keeping in mind that COVID is still out there in higher numbers than in previous waves. And, you know, just being smart about it, not being overly anxious now, because I think it is a time when we can, you know, park that anxiety a little bit in, um, in the back of our mind, do the things we know that are help us the most, but, but uh, you know, let go a little bit in terms of, you know, those fears of interacting with anyone at all 
uh, for those who still are very hesitant about that. Excellent advice. And here's to a calm summer when it comes to COVID. Dr. Barry Pecos, York Region's Medical Officer of Health, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us this long weekend, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you. Have a great summer, and, and I hope everyone knows that those in public health are going to have a great summer, but a big part of that is going to be um, us preparing to make sure that, that everyone else has a great fall and rest of the year. So uh, best of luck to everyone and have a great summer. You do great work, and thank you and the team very much. Over now to Kevin Frankish and the OMA's call for solutions in healthcare. Well, these are new statistics, but really, when it comes right down to it, there is nothing new about them. We need to fix wait times for both mental health and overall health. We have doctor shortages, especially in Peel and York regions. That's a finding of the Ontario Medical Association. The OMA president, Dr. Rose Zacharias, joins me uh, right now to chat about this. And, and Dr. Zacharias, this is, of course, is very timely. We are just a very short time away from a provincial election. Absolutely, we are indeed June 2nd, our provincial election. And you heard what he said. Uh, These are new stats, but there's nothing new about this. Wait times, doctor shortages, we just, have we just learned to live with them that we're ignoring them now? So indeed, you're correct. Prior to the pandemic, we knew that the average person in Ontario was waiting longer than the provincial recommendation for key procedures, hip surgeries, knee surgeries, hernia and cataract surgeries, as well as mammograms and colonoscopies for cancer screening. And there we had, right, the crisis of COVID. So a full two years where we had to deal with the crisis and many of these procedures were put on the shelf and people who are unwell dealing with uh, the pain and the suffering of those ailments are still waiting and waiting way too long. So the pandemic has exacerbated what were what was already a healthcare challenge prior to March 2020. And and some of the findings you found: residents of Peel and York Region are waiting longer than recommended for MRIs and some surgeries. In Peel, forty percent. Absolutely. W- yeah, in Peel, forty percent waited longer in Brampton than provincial targets uh, for knee surgery. Uh, in York Region, 32% waited longer than recommended for knee surgery in Markham, and 70% waited longer for MRIs in Newark. So this is something we know is there. What is it that is going to fix this? Or is that possible? So Ontario's doctors have a five-point plan. We're talking about a, a prescription, really, for Ontario, where we are addressing the wait time. This is a number one priority for Ontarians as they head to the polls um, to catch up on that backlog. And so at the Ontario Medical Association, we have been talking about freestanding, um, publicly funded clinics that would work alongside hospitals, um, be publicly administered, no user fees or queue jumping, but a place where people could come walk into get these surgeries and procedures that we're talking about, and then um, less resources in the system, often like lower infection rates and and, and definitely increased um, patient satisfaction, and then an opportunity to catch up on the backlog. And so it is um, an idea. Um, it is um, something that we think could be achievable um, so that hospitals would be offloaded from those um, you know, lesser emergent and lesser complex 
procedures that could happen outside of the hospital. We really need to rethink how we deliver healthcare, and this would be one solid idea. How much longer can we hold off two-tier medical health care? So we need to address the wait times now. We also need investments in our long-term care and community care. We need access to publicly funded teams of healthcare providers that address the mental health tsunami that we will now experience coming out of COVID. We also need a public um, health strategy to deal with the next crisis, right? We don't know what's coming around the corner. Indeed, we've learned so much during COVID. And so we can't wait at all to know better how to deal with the next crisis. Ontarians paid a big price lockdowns, restrictions, the hit the economy took. And so we, we can gather the information that we have now to better prepare for the future. And I, I say we do it now. <laughs> but I, I understand, but I mean, is, is two-tier user-pay healthcare, is that inevitable? Uh, we love our universal healthcare. It's important. It's important as well that, that no matter what salary you may make, you should be eligible for, for equal healthcare. But is it inevitable that we're going to see people jumping the queue and paying for some health care just to bring relief to the system? So it is our pride and a priority for a publicly funded health care system. And the, the, the challenges that we currently face because we've come out of COVID can be achieved inside of a publicly funded healthcare system. I work in the emergency department. When the doors are open, everyone walks in, and no matter who you are, um, you get a standard of care that is the highest quality standard. And I would want that for every single person that comes into to the hospital. And so as we keep that a priority and look to how to fund, I do think inside of our prescription for Ontario, it's there on the internet, betterhealthcare.ca. We outline 87 very specific recommendations, how to bring about this type of quality healthcare that everyone deserves and needs right now inside of a publicly funded system. We have two pressures that are building daily on our healthcare system, and that is Seniors and mental health. Absolutely. Mental health and uh, addictions um, issues are definitely uh, an issue. Um, it was prior to the pandemic, but we know that um, you know one in five people prior to the pandemic said they were dealing with depression, anxiety, other mental health challenges. And now 84% in a recent poll said the pandemic has exacerbated um, mental health issues, people who would have normally been able to deal with the strain and the stress um, of job loss or um, um, the other, you know, stressors of, um, of school closures and, and uh, moving to online schooling, all of that has really taken a toll. And so now that, um, you know, we are, are, are coming out of the more intense phase of COVID, people are, are coming forward and saying, this has been a struggle. This is the wear and tear on my mental health. And we definitely need an investment strategy there. I've always argued that if we would just spend a little bit more on mental health, because I don't think, I, I don't think we spend nearly enough, but if we would spend a little more on mental health, it would actually pay for itself because it would be providing some relief on the system because mental health issues can then become heart issues, can then become blood pressure issues, can then become addiction issues. And so how much should we be paying attention 
to mental health and more preventative uh, preventative plans? Absolutely. Well, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. We know that mental health impacts our physical health. Just think about what, um, you know, a family deals with when they, um, what, what an individual deals with when they are um, a diabetic, for example, but are um, just needing to kind of achieve good um, blood sugar control in order for their heart to be healthy and for um, the decreased risk of heart attack. And yet, um, the stress and the strain of COVID has impacted somebody who's dealing with their diabetes to the point where they just don't have the motivation to get up and go to the diabetes education center to have that interaction with the dietitian to um, also live out a healthy lifestyle. It takes a lot of energy to get daily and regular exercise. And all the while, that person who has diabetes, which is a chronic condition but can be lived with and not impact your lifestyle um, 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 profoundly, if it's well controlled, is impacted by the stress and the strain of a mental health depression or anxiety that just really robs them of the ability to manage that diabetes. And so that person becomes sicker, their blood pressure gets higher, they're at increased risk of heart attack and stroke, and then that person is really debilitated when they have that um, that, that heart attack or stroke and then become dependent on care inside of a system where long-term care and community care is not as robust as it should be. And you're looking at a person's life that's really been, you know, torn apart um, by thread by thread and it's not right. We need to be caring for the full person. And so in that case, the physical health and mental health is one and the same and equal priority. And then just a, a final uh, a note as well is that the frontline workers themselves need help. We have morale issues. We have people just wanting to leave the industry completely. Um, it's the people who are actually delivering our health care are in need of support. So we need to invest in our health care providers. Uh, the Canadian Medical Association recently came out with some statistics. Physicians in Canada are saying 53% are saying they're operating at high levels of burnout, and 46% of doctors are saying they're looking to cut back clinically in the next two years. And I show up in the emergency department. I work with nurses that work so hard, and other members of the team, respiratory technicians, physiotherapists, pharmacists, social workers, discharge coordinators that are working equally as hard. And everyone is exhausted. And so we need to, uh, to definitely be strategic about investing in the mental health and support of our healthcare team. Because without the people inside the system, we don't have a healthcare system. And so that is definitely, definitely needing to be prioritized. All right. Where can people see more about uh, your suggestions for the candidates? Because I think it's something important people should look at before they go out to the polling station. Betterhealthcare.ca shows our prescription for Ontario, just like a physician writes your prescription at the end of your visit to the emergency department. We've written a prescription for Ontario very clearly outlined around five pillars, catching up on the backlog, investment in community and long-term, and mental health care, as well as public health strategy to deal with the next crisis, and also giving everyone in Ontario a doctor, one million People in Ontario don't have a family doctor. We need healthcare teams wrapped around every person in Ontario, no matter how rural and remote you are. And also those teams would be connected digitally 
people can learn all about our prescription as well as a report card that we're um, that we just recently issued aligning aligning up uh, next to each party's platform and their healthcare system platform um, at betterhealthcare.ca. All right, thank you very much for this. Thank you so much for having me, President of the OMA, Dr. Rose Zacharias, speaking to me from her home home office in Aurelia. After the break, could working from home be here to stay? Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. The pandemic triggered hybrid work options for many. Tina Cortez with a long-term financial impact. Wayne Berger is the CEO of America's IWG International Workplace Group. Welcome to the feed, Wayne. Thanks for having me, Tina. Very so much let's, appreciated. Let's dig into your research. It shows that the adoption of hybrid working could save companies big bucks. How much are we talking? Yeah, it's significant. So if you take a look, you think about here we are sitting in a in a situation where we have faced we're facing with uh, with the highest inflation rates in forty years. So there's a really nice opportunity for companies and workers to reduce their costs, and we're talking significant. Uh, research is showing that hybrid working can save businesses thirteen thousand dollars per employee annually. That's over a thousand dollars a month directly back into the pockets of both both workers and companies. That's huge, right? So that's a big dollar amount for companies. But does it apply to only those big downtown Toronto companies? No. So it's such a good point. And this actually can be achieved by by some of the largest companies in Canada, for example, the banks, federal institutions, um, large tech firms. But, But it can also be attributed, it can also be achieved uh, with startups and small scale-ups as well. And so it doesn't matter what the size is in terms of the organization. Many organizations across the board can implement uh, various types of solutions to reduce their costs. So this is also an issue that's certainly been talked about on the provincial election campaign, whether it's rental mm-hmm. savings, a four-day work week, uh, travel expenses. Yeah. The savings certainly appear to be worth it. But is there a cost in terms of productivity, do you think? Uh, such a good question. So I believe that productivity and this idea of, of impacting culture are such misnomers. So here's what's been proven. Now, prior to the pandemic, more than, more than 20% of workers globally, not just in Canada, but globally, worked from somewhere other than a traditional corporate headquarters for at least half the week. So structurally, we had millions of Canadians every week working from some from somewhere other than a corporate headquarters, and culture still grew. Productivity was all, was uh, was always at a, at a high rate. And then you overlay a pandemic, and workers and companies have found that that workers have never been more productive than during that during the um, during the during the pandemic. And a couple of reasons why: one, we were able to completely eradicate the commute time, of which. For some people across Canada, if you think about just in our in our region, if you're traveling from Barrie to Toronto, uh, your commute time just on the go train alone, forget about driving, is going to be upwards of two hours a day. So, 
So productivity was growing and, uh, and being achieved at higher rates during the pandemic. So the opportunity now moving towards flex is so critical. And I'm going to share with you a couple of quick stats. 90% of employees want flexibility in where and when they work. They find that they're more engaged, they're, they're, um, they're more productive, and they're able to achieve more during the day because they're able to eliminate the commute and also wasted time in between live meetings. And 88% of companies have instituted flexible working solutions because A, it's reducing the cost for organizations when it comes to their capital leases and traditional rent. Secondly, it's also helping attract and retain great talent. So productivity is actually risen with flexibility as well as engagement and culture. So it sounds like employees are on board. What about the businesses and the employers? Well, it's a really good question. So um, 88% of companies right now have instituted flexible working. And, the, and there's a few reasons why. When we talk to companies every day, it's really interesting. Every company we're speaking with across the board, and it's not just based on a few industries. It's, it's, it's across multiple, multiple sectors and multiple industries in which those companies are now looking for solutions to try to deploy flexible working in a productive way and, and help alleviate the idea of remote working being only from home. Because there's this notion of an idea that remote working or hybrid working means working from home, and then office working means coming to a traditional corporate headquarters. But the reality is there's a big middle zone, the third place, where people actually want to leave their house, and they want to be able to travel to a place closer to home to be able to get great work done. And what's happening now is decisions are being made, not just at the C-suite, but HR is a critical role in, making, in, uh, in driving the decision. And companies are asking their employees how they want to work in, in a greater state than ever before. So companies are really leaning on their employees to get an idea of how they feel they can be most productive. Now, what's interesting is progressive companies like Sun Life Canada, for example, Sun Life Canada has instituted a completely flexible work style moving forward here post-pandemic. They're, they're allowing their tens of thousands of, of employees to work in a flexible way, basically to work wherever they feel most productive each day of the week. And that could be from multiple locations. It could be from a Sun Life office. It could be from home. It could be from a flexible workspace or co-working facility. But what they've asked their employees to do is ensure that when they want to gather people back together for um, let's call it like a high desire type of event. So what, what, what they refer to as moments of togetherness. They want to bring people into an office to, uh, to brainstorm, to innovate, to collaborate together. A manager wants to have a team meeting live. A, uh, an op- um, a, uh, a, uh, a, a team wants to be able to gather in one physical location. They're asking people to come together for a very purposeful way. Right, so so work is really shift, shifting towards being more purpose driven versus just this notion of of um, of traveling in five days a week back and forth on a long commute in order to sit in an office, regardless of the type of work that they do each day. It sounds like it's about achieving a better work life balance as well. Yeah. So absolutely. Um, 
it's interesting. APP Canada came out with their recent survey of um, of work of workplace benefits, and in the survey, for the first time in thirty years, the number one criteria of survey respondents um, in, of survey response in which in which their number one criteria. Um, that was driving their decision to either stay with the organization or, or transition to a new organization was, was the focus on health and wellness and work-life balance. So that was the number one criteria that superseded salary and title for the first, and this was for the first time in its, in the survey's 30 year history. So work-life balance and health and wellness has become paramount. It's the number one benefit that workers are seeking for. Um, so, Health and wellness absolutely is playing a critical role, um, as, uh, as 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 one would as one would consider considering what we've just managed through for the last couple of years. But um, I think the other thing that's really going to start to present itself here over the rest of 2022 and into the next few years is the commitment to the environment. I think sustainability is becoming a greater driver both for organizations who are looking to drive a great ESG policy, but also for workers. So millennials are a critical driver in this. By 2030, 75% of Canada's workforce will be either millennial or Gen Z. What's interesting about that group is they want to work for a company that wants to make a difference. And they want to work for an organization that believes in diversity in inclusivity, and in, and in environmental sustainability. One of the best ways for companies to achieve their environmental goals is helping eradicate and reduce CO2 emissions that are driven through the, through the traditional commute. So companies that are giving their employees more flexibility also help them achieve their ESG standards. So it's health and wellness, and it's also wellness for the globe. Flexibility, opportunity, options. It sounds like hybrid work is here to stay. Wayne, if our listeners want more information about IWG, where can they find it? Best place to uh, connect with us is with, um, with two of our largest brands known as Regis and Spaces. We have 130 locations across Canada. Uh, you can reach us at www.regis.ca or www.spacesworks.com. Terrific. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Tina. When we come back, transitional housing. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Blue Door began in 1982 as a small community shelter. And with great vision, deep caring, and incredible support from the community, Blue Door, 40 years later, is now the largest emergency housing operator in York Region. A major milestone, a huge accomplishment, but as Blue Door grew, so did homelessness. Maybe it's actually the other way around. Blue Door expanded to keep up with the growing need for shelter. Alex Chang is Blue Door's Director of Programs, Housing and Health. He joins us on the feed now to talk about a very specific Blue Door initiative in the fight against homelessness. It's new transitional housing. Alex, thank you so much for joining us and giving us your time. So your title, Director of Programs, Housing and Health. How closely linked are housing and health? 
Hi, Anne. Thank you for having me. Um, they're very much linked. I think uh, what we see with people that experience homelessness is that once uh, once they've lost their housing, it affects much more. It's much more than uh, than just having a roof over their heads. It affects uh, their their overall health outcome, their mental health, and their physical health as well. The pandemic has affected so many of us in so many different ways. People who are experiencing homelessness, how difficult has this pandemic been for them? It's been incredibly difficult. I mean, at emergency housing at Blue Door, at the very start, we had to serve people while having increased uh, health uh, health guidelines and health restrictions in place. And for people going out into the community finding housing, it also meant uh, navigating the, uh, the the different housing opportunities with restrictions in place as well, and also noticing um, you know prices skyrocketing in the in the community too. So affordability has been uh, an increased issue for us as well. We just. Have- had earlier this week inflation numbers and they're through the roof and it's really difficult for people to to find work to find housing to pay for food to to just live to exist rather than to survive thrive you know we we're always hoping for thriving rather than just surviving let's talk about blue door's most recent initiative and that is transitional housing and it brings us to passage house so what exactly is transitional housing and where does passage house come in yeah, uh, transitional housing is very important in our housing continuum because it does allow individuals and families a, a supportive environment where they can stay up to a year or sometimes a little bit more to build up the resources and skills necessary in today's marketplace uh, to really successfully find a suitable and stable housing arrangement, but also get those resources in place to be able to ensure that they have good mental and, and physical health, employment opportunities, and address any legal or any other issues that they need to address for longer-term stability. Uh, Passage House is uh, is a new building. It's a building that the York Region has built that will provide 18 one-bedroom self-contained apartments uh, for uh, for adult males here in York. Um, it is unique in that transitional housing mimics the environment of independence that people expect when they move out uh, on their own in the community. Uh, and this is a setting where we can uh, work with each unique individual to ensure uh, that we address uh, some of the things in their lives that uh, that will contribute that will contribute to their long term housing stability. So, how does it work? How does it help those who will be a part of Passage House? So, going from emergency shelters or straight out homelessness, eventually to your permanent residence. So, the transitional housing Passage House, the inner workings of it. How does that all come together. Right. I think what we're seeing from the first step is that we see people at the very emergency, uh, accessing our emergency housing uh, programs. And usually that is a very rapid rehousing type of model where we work with people uh, between 30 to 60 days to find a place to live. Support, uh, transitional housing fits in that gap in that uh, we're finding that for many people, we need much more time to work with them and help them navigate the, the, the current housing market uh, in uh, elements that like that they'll need support for longer-term housing. Uh, for Passage House, for example, it allows us to work uh, with individuals for uh, for up to a year. We have a case management team that uh, uh, that works with uh, each individual uh, to ensure that we're able to assess and also identify some of those uh, goals and elements in their lives to uh, to try to help them build that capacity to live independently. So that's a little bit different from the emergency setting, which is uh, very, very quick, very, very rapid.
I'd love to know, and I know the doors haven't opened yet. You, you're you're just about finished building Passage House, but on a daily basis, what would a typical day be like for a member of Passage House? Well, it would be a mixture of what would you would expect when people live independently in the community. Um, they are going to have their own apartment unit. Uh, it is uh, equipped with a bathroom and a kitchenette. Uh, what uh, what individuals can expect is uh, frequent meetings with our teams to be able to work on uh, uh, work on identifying uh, some of uh, some of those goals that uh, that they'll want to work towards in order to be better equipped to uh, uh, to live independently. And these include uh, you know uh, looking at the employment opportunities, helping them with uh, uh, with interview skills, uh, connecting with other community resources on site. Uh, we're also going to be providing an on-site health hub to, uh, through, uh, through Passage House as well, where uh, people are going to have access to primary care. They're going to have access to addictions medicine if needed. Uh, they're going to have access to social supports that are going to be incorporated into the daily activities of Passage House. Uh, so it is very much uh, trying to find a balance between providing those supports, but also providing them that arm's length independence where they can make uh, that one-bedroom apartment their own for the time that they're with us and uh, we'll work hand-in-hand with them to uh, uh, to, uh, to be given that, uh, that, uh, that guiding hand should they need any further supports. A hand up rather than a handout. That certainly is it. How important, Alex, is the word respect when it comes to those who will be living at Passage House? I think it is very important that it's both respect and dignity of the individual. I think uh, for uh, for very long, I think we've had uh, the conception that that, uh, uh, that people are blamed for their situations. A passage house in uh, in this transitional program, we're not uh, we're not blaming individuals. We're placing individuals in um, in uh, in a situation where they can expect that respect and that dignity, um, and they can uh, and they can take that back into the community once they uh, uh, once they integrate back into to uh, finding a housing placement of their own for the long term. Why men at this point? Why men at this point? That's a very good question, I think. For for us here in New York Region, we've had transitional housing uh, for, for youth already uh, with uh, other providers like 360 Kids and the Salvation Army. We also have a transitional program for women at Belinda's Place. Uh, the one that has been missing, the gap that has been missing for us here in the region has been transitional housing for men. Um, uh, men need these supports just as much as uh, as women and youth do. We're in the middle of a, an election campaign. If you had the ear of the leaders right now stumping for votes, what would you say to them in terms of what you feel and Blue Door feels is necessary to be more supportive of those in need? I think it's a lot of things, and I think it starts with um, with addressing housing stability, um, uh, housing stock, uh, so that people who are uh, either precariously housed or are, are at risk of being homeless or experiencing homelessness uh, are able to rapidly find a place uh, to call uh, to call home. But we also see that uh, that health is an important part of uh, of that um, uh, of that holistic view as well. We need to make sure that our healthcare system is equipped to address the needs of, uh, of people that have experienced homelessness. Um, oftentimes, what we see is that uh, is that they're they're forgotten, and uh, we want to be uh, we want to be partners and look at ways in which uh, we can uh, we uh, we can lower 
the level of re-traumatization that someone who experiences homelessness may experience by accessing the healthcare system, the emergency room, and so forth. So I think there is uh, it's both around housing, it is around health supports, around training and education, um, really around making life affordable for folks and uh, in dealing with uh, um, food insecurity and so forth. I encourage anybody listening right now to go to your website and find a way to contribute, whatever it is, whether it's volunteering or making a donation. It's so important. But I have a question. When Passage House opens or prior to it, how do the men who would like to have access to it, be a part of it, how do they reach out to you? Not everybody has access to the Internet. Right. Uh, people will have access uh, through us by uh, calling us directly at Udor. Um, there will be, uh, we will be looking at applications and uh, looking at, uh, uh, at uh, eligibility criteria for folks as well. Um, most of the times, uh, people will come through one of the emergency uh, housing programs or one of the seasonal housing programs, um, and we can assess uh, uh, eligibility and fit for the program. Can you, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you give us Blue Door's number, please? Yes, uh, you can contact us at 905-898-1015. Excellent. Alex Chang, thank you so much. Director of Programs, Housing and Health, Blue Door. I look forward to chatting with you again next month. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much, Anne. The United Way is also calling for help. Jim Lang with that story. Well, I mean, if unless you're living in a cave or under a rock, everyone's been impacted by the cost of living and the cost of housing, especially right here in New York region. To talk more about it, well, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by the President and CEO of the United Way of Greater Toronto, the always impactful Daniele Zanotti. Daniele, how are you? Great. So glad to be here, Jim. Thank you. Uh, I we just my wife and I just had a situation. Our youngest daughter in university, and we had a devil of a time trying to find a place for her to rent with her roommates because. We found out that families are trying to rent the same places as students. This is where we've gotten to with the cost of living for renting. How has it impacted York Region and people just trying to find a roof over their head? There is no doubt that the crisis of affordability is impacting every single resident of York Region. But let's be very clear. It's threatening and having irreparable damage to York Region's most vulnerable. So we know whether it's the cost of gas in Georgina, groceries in Newmarket, rent in Richmond Hill, or for your daughter, Jim, we know that affordability and inflation is hurting. But for those particularly and disproportionately impacted by COVID, by poverty, affordability is hitting even harder. We've been working with our network of over 300 agencies across the GTA, 55 agencies we fund directly in York Region. And here are the four things that emerge as priorities every single month. Food, financial support, access to jobs, and mental health. Mm. And these triggers are layering on top for people, especially in our region, Jim, impacted by poverty. Well, once upon a time, I would think about problems with housing, uh, housing and you know, trying to rent and find a place to live, and there was a certain line in the sand. But uh, my wife and I, we know 
middle class people with good jobs and they're having struggles as well. That line has moved quite a bit in the last few years. Are, are you and the United Way of Greater Toronto finding the same thing? We are absolutely finding that the impact of affordability is disproportionately hitting those impacted by poverty and let me underline that and impacting people who have been living middle income lives. Think about this, Jim. We've seen about a 400% spike in the number of people reaching out to distress lines because of inability to meet basic needs, food, financial obligations, paying rent. And these, the half of these are first time callers. And so in a region as affluent as York region, where we have traditionally talked about neighborhoods and wealth and lack of social services, what we are seeing today is affordability is impacting people in new ways, unable to pay for gas, unable to pay for rent. We at United Way are stubbornly focused on those most impacted by poverty. And we know that for this region to be great, it has got to be great for everybody. We're seeing a 40% spike in people reaching out to food banks. Our point-in-time count in York region, where we literally and figuratively, Jim, with groups of volunteers, count the number of people living homeless across our region, we have seen it continues to rise year over year. And we need to ensure that at this moment, when we are as citizens, we keep the lives and stories and reality of our most vulnerable front and center. And there are some simple, practical, evidence-based ways to address this, Jim. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm speaking with Daniela Zanotti, the president and CEO of the United Way of Greater Toronto. You mentioned mental health, Daniela. If you've got stress over rent and living, the price of gas, food insecurity, your job, I mean, it's impossible that your mental health wouldn't be affected. I mean, even if you had one of those things, but if you had a couple, I mean, it must be a tremendous strain in the mental health community for United Way of Greater Toronto. The, we, we have always talked about our network of agencies in York region being slim and stretched. Hmm. And what we are experiencing now post-COVID in what I would say is the new pandemic, inflation and affordability, what our agencies are seeing is more people reaching out in more dire need. But as I mentioned earlier, there are some very simple ways that we can address this for residents of York Region, for residents of Ontario. Number one, provide adequate income support, starting from social assistance and Ontario disability, so that people have the ability to buy food and not worry if they can pay their rent. Number two, expand affordable housing options for people in along the continuum from those living in homelessness to potentially your daughter seeking to get their first home or condo. We need to ensure that there's a continuum of affordable housing options for residents. We've got to talk about basic building blocks like child care, 
home care and long-term care for seniors, and that those people working in those places, Jim, are paid for and paid with dignity. We've got to think about decent work with adequate incomes and safe workplaces. And finally, for those who still, with all of those four building blocks, fall through the cracks, we've got to make sure there is a strong social safety net across your region so that when I call for mental health support, when I call for food, when I call for a kid in crisis, someone is there in Georgina, in East Willembury, in King, to answer the call. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I hear you talk about affordable housing options. After World War II, this country built thousands of small, simple homes for soldiers returning from Italy and France and England and Europe. And everyone raised families, no problem. I, I drive around the region every day and I see the new developments and I wonder, my goodness, who can afford this? Why can't we build a small, simple home that costs 250, 300,000 to give people a chance of owning something? It is the million-dollar question, my friend. We have been out of the affordable social housing build for decades. Had we continued to build at the clip of the 1980s and 1990s, we would not find ourselves in an affordable housing crisis today. Mm. And so it is incumbent that all levels of government think about getting back into the housing continuum. Not only housing for my family, your family, our children, but the entire continuum, starting with supportive housing so that an individual can get access to their first room or a shared unit and also have some of the wraparound mental health supports that they might need. But what this means, Jim, is that all levels of government, corporations, agencies, get back into housing as a human right. It is the basic need from which all other things, food security, self-esteem, come. So you can have a discussion about inflation. You can have a discussion about affordability. But without the basic building blocks of housing, good jobs, child care, we will, we will continually fall back into meeting basic needs and not addressing the long-term root causes of these problems. I know there's a lot of good people in York Region and people want to help. People listening to this and hearing your impassioned plea for help, what can they do to support the United Way of Greater Toronto make a difference to help you and your staff? We have seen unequivocally over these last two years, the care and generosity of people across York Region. And in the face of the COVID pandemic, we have seen people respond by financial contributions, by volunteering, by getting involved in their neighborhood. We must continue to do the same as we enter this next pandemic of affordability, which we know is going to take years to get out of, I remain heartened by York Region residents, agencies, businesses, government, and their ability to respond. Now is the moment. It's not about rebuilding what we had before, Jim, because clearly there were flaws and 
it did not work for all residents of York Region. This is about reimagining a York Region that is great for everybody, that starts with affordable housing, access to childcare, access to good jobs, so that we're not worried about, can I put some food on the table for my three kids? Or worse, am I going to be roaming around in a park in Newmarket versus having a roof over my head? Yeah, it's um, something's got to change. And thanks to people like you and the amazing men and women and everyone involved with the United Way of Greater Toronto, you're making a difference. Daniele Zanotti, thank you so much for what you do and shining a light on these issues. We need to do better, not just governments, but citizens. All of us collectively need to get together, put aside our differences and help people in need because that's what it's all about as far as I'm concerned. We can do better. And it always begins with agencies, government, residents working in a united way. Small acts of kindness, small acts of generosity, neighbor to neighbor, community, community, from King to Markham, all the way up to Keswick, my friend. We know we can make a difference in York Region. It's the only thing that has. Thank you so much for doing this. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.